0: Good morning everybody. Uh, I'm really excited to welcome all of you here and, and also all of those who are worshiping with us online to welcome you uh, once again to this worship service and it is, is my distinct honor to get to uh, bring you a message from God's word this morning. You know over the past few weeks we've been in the midst of this worship series uh, called See What God Sees and this kind of um, uh, main image or main thought we've been we've been working with is this notion of the image of God, right? What is the image of God? Seeing the image of God in others, and every week we've had a little bit of a different sort of uh, focus or understanding about what that means, right? So the, the the first week of the series we we were way back in Genesis one, and we read about you know as God is creating the whole universe as sort of the culmination of that creation. God uh, created humankind, created us. He said, said, let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness, right? And so we have stamped upon us deep down the image of God. And there's a lot of different ways to think about what that means. I tend to think about it as um, a few things. One, that we're, we're made for relationship with God right, to kind of, to interact with God, to know God, right, we're made for relationship with one another, I, I kind of get that from when I, we read, you know, uh, male and female, he created them, right, God didn't just make one person, and God didn't make all people exactly alike, but God made uh, all of us, and he made all of us different, and that's a beautiful, wonderful thing, and we're all stamped with the image of God, and, and, and as well, uh, God made us for responsibility, for a purpose, to tend uh, the earth, to take care of the earth, to take care of one another, sort of as God's um, governors, if you will, of this earth. And that's a big responsibility. And then in the second week, we talked about some of the ways in which that um, didn't turn out the way that perhaps we would have wanted it to, right, that that, uh, we read about Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel and how... um, Cain failed to see the image of God in his brother Abel and killed him, right? And for the first time, someone was truly unable to see the image of God in someone else. And we have, we remember that haunting image, uh, haunting to me at least of, of the words that, you know, the, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out from the ground, Accusing Cain. And and this, I I believe, has has sort of stuck with us ever since then. There's been something, uh, you know, not quite right. We, We fail to see God's image in one another. The way that the ancient church, the ancient Christians, the church fathers talked about it, was that they said that the image of God was distorted or obscured or damaged in us. And that's the way they would think about it. And so, and so right, so we, we talked about this beautiful image of God being stamped on us. We've talked about the way that image got distorted and how that keeps us from seeing one another as God sees us. And so today, I, I kind of think that, that we're sort of turning the corner a little bit in the sense of uh, we've established the sort of the problem. And now I think we want to begin to ask, what's the solution? Like what, how do we get out of this mess? Where can we look to be saved, to, to, to be, have that image restored, to be able to see that image once again in each other. And um, so that's what we're talking about today. And spoiler alert, okay, the answer is Jesus. i will just go ahead and get it out there. This is a church after all, we talk about Jesus a lot. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not gonna keep you in false suspense to find out how it is that image is restored, but Jesus Christ is the way that image is restored. And, um, um, the thing is, we need Jesus to do that for us because we cannot do it ourselves. And I was, last night, I, uh, uh, I, I'm so great, grateful to Amy for indulging me by adding a slide. And now Christian, don't put the slide up yet because I don't want them to see it yet, but get it, get it ready. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I thought this perfect, I think perfect illustration of what happens when we try to fix ourselves when we try to fix the image of God in ourselves and try to just make it right all all on our own. Maybe you remember a news story from several years ago. It was about a little church in Spain and there was this uh, priceless fresco on the wall, right? Like a painting on the wall and it had become damaged. You couldn't hardly tell, I mean, you could tell what it was. It was a portrait of Jesus, but it was all messed up. It just didn't look very good anymore. Is this ringing a bell to anybody? Okay, so you know where I'm going. Uh, um, I I love this. Um, And so what happens, but this wonderful old saint of the church, I can't remember her name. I know she was was 81 years old. She'd been in this church her whole life, right? She just wants to do something to help her church. And they're kind of cleaning up around the church and she sees that fresco and she thinks, you know what, I'm gonna fix that. I'm gonna repair that fresco so that it'll it'll be beautiful and glorious again. Now it was supposed to be a picture of Jesus. Now Christian, will you show us the slide so we can see the result? Okay. (laughs) Right, so it didn't really turn out maybe how she might have wanted. It became kind of an international news story because I mean, this is a priceless fresco we're talking about, Um, but she just wanted to make it better. She had all the best intentions, but it ends up looking like a a, a cartoon chimpanzee is what I see when I look at that, right? I think to me, this is an illustration of what it looks like when we try to fix ourselves. We try to, 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 to go in without the skills, without the qualifications and repair ourselves, repair our relationships with one another. We can't do it. We're like that precious saint of the church who just wanted to fix that painting. I have a quote here from, um, from, from Athanasius, Athanasius of Alexandria. He was, he was one of the sort of great church fathers of the fourth, fourth century, I'm going to say. And um, this is kind of what led me to this, to think about that image in this way. So I just want you to hear what he says about what Christ did for us. hear these words. You know what happens when a portrait painted on a panel becomes obliterated through external stains. The artist does not throw away the panel, but the subject of the portrait has to sit for it again. And then the likeness is redrawn on the same material. Even so was it with the all holy son of God. He, the image of the father came and dwelt in our midst, in order that he might renew mankind after himself. So I love this image from Athanasius of, of right? right this, just like the fresco, this damaged painting of humanity, but that God, rather than just throwing it out, said, you know what? We're gonna, we're gonna fix humanity. We're gonna create, we're gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna come to them as, as the perfect humanity, the pinnacle of humanity, God and humankind together, and sort of re-imprint That image of God onto humanity. I think that's a beautiful image of what Jesus did, and there's, and um, there's, but we don't have time to unpack all the richness there. But so, it's all right. The Sunday school answer is the answer to the question: How do we? How do we fix? Fix? uh, How does this get fixed? It's Jesus Christ, right? And so today we turn in our text to a story about about Jesus Christ. We were in Genesis the past two weeks and now we're turning to Jesus. And um, I wanna read this text together. And it may not be completely obvious at first what this has to say to us about repairing the image of God, seeing what God sees. Um, but I found it truly really beautiful as I've, been, as I've been digging into this. So, so let's, let's read this word together. This is from John's gospel in the eighth chapter. And beginning in verse two, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? Thanks be to God. Amen. So the story of Jesus, How? what can we learn here about seeing what God sees, about the image of God being restored in us? And I think... Um, well, think. Well, let's just kind of walk through uh, the text a little bit at a time, and uh, I hope that it will become clear and that we will you will see um, this this beautiful this beautiful thing that's happening here. So, so friends, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. Right. So this. So. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching the scribes and the Pharisees. If you've read much of the Bible at all, you'll know that they're kind of the classic enemies of Jesus in the Bible. They're always trying to trip him up and and test him. Um, They, you know, Sort of opposed Jesus. They kind of thought he was a fraud, maybe, and were a little bit. Also, were a little bit maybe um, uh, intimidated by the by his teaching and by the works of power that he could perform. And so, and so they were they were test. They kept testing him and testing him. And uh, there's a lot of great stories of their tests. And and here's another one. And then this one is particularly ingenious, I think, on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's particularly ingenious. And here's why. There's a, this is a no-win situation. For Jesus, no matter what he says, either yes or no. If he says one of those two things, um, he's in trouble and the Pharisees have something on him. So first of all, right, if they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman, right? She's committed adultery. The law says that the the penalty is death. What do we do, Jesus? If he says, well, you know, adultery, no big deal. The law doesn't really matter, so just let her go. If he says that, he's in trouble with the temple, right? He's in trouble with the high priest. He's also in trouble with the common people, the people who love him so much because they trust him and they see here is one who truly teaches the law. Here is the one who teaches us in a way that we can trust. And so if they hear him saying, the law doesn't really matter, do whatever you want to do, well then, the Pharisees are going to kind of have one over on Jesus. So, so he kind of can't say that. On the other hand, if he says, "You know what, guys, you're right. She committed adultery. The law of Moses says the penalty is death. Go ahead, stone her." Well, then he's in trouble again. But this time he's in trouble with the Romans, because the deal, you know. Uh, as we read the scriptures, we learn that, and we read history as well, we learn that the Romans, when they would conquer a people, you know, they gave them a fair amount of freedom of certain kinds. They could kind of rule themselves. They could have their sort of local leaders. And, but there were some things that they would withhold from the people. And one of those things was the right to give the sentence of death, to give the capital punishment. And that, this is why ultimately Jesus is going to be sent to Pontius Pilate and it's going to be Pontius Pilate once again, spoiler alert, who is gonna gonna sentence Jesus to death because the the high priest can't do that. They don't have that right. And so if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead, fulfill the law, you know, enact the death penalty, they can go run to the Romans and say, here's this guy who's breaking the law. He's inciting a riot. Come arrest him, throw him in jail. And they probably would have because they didn't mess around with that kind of stuff. So it's a no-win situation. But as usual, Jesus so brilliantly sort of circumvents the trap because he, he knows what's up. He knows that these, these folks, they're not really interested in justice. They're just interested in, in winning, right? They're willing to sacrifice this, this woman. And I, want, and I just wanna mention, first of all, right? They say that in the law of Moses, the penalty is, is death for adultery. If you actually go and look at that law, You'll see what it says is, yeah, okay, yeah, the penalty is death, but it's death for both, the man and the woman. Where's the man, right? It takes two to tango, as they say. And so she's been the victim of a great injustice here. And in their attempt to be righteous, these folks, in fact, have violated the very law that they're accusing her of. And a bunch of other laws as well. But what Jesus does, right? He says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And this is brilliant because there's none who are without sin. I don't think you needed Paul in Romans later to tell you that. (laughs) I think even if the Pharisees at the time would know, there's no one without sin. They knew their Bibles as well as anybody. They knew that it said that all over the Psalms and all over the Old Testament, that there's none without sin. And not only that, but they knew that they'd broken that law themselves, right? They knew the law very well. They knew that they had committed an injustice against this woman. They had not seen the image of God in her. They had been willing to throw her under the bus to score some points on Jesus. And their consciences were pricked, if you will, and the trap didn't spring and they went away. Friends, why does this matter? Friends, you and I are the Pharisees. I hate to tell you, we are the Pharisees. We hold others to a standard that we don't necessarily live up to, right? I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't, I do. I fight it, but nonetheless, it's there. That pride is there. that, um, that willingness to give myself slack where I won't give others slack. That's just the, kind of the tip of the iceberg, right? You and I are the, the Pharisees. We, we can't see the image of God in other people. We can't even see it a lot of times in ourselves. And we participate in this Injustice. And so we move on to the woman. This woman has had a great injustice perpetrated against her as we've already kind of spelled out, right? Both she and the man were just as guilty and yet here only she is. Imagine that. Can't imagine that happening in our world, right? That there would be an unequal application of law. Can't imagine that would happen. Surely we can. But there's really no doubt that she's guilty, right? Here's sort of the complicating factor. I mean, it doesn't say, um, right? We read in here, it doesn't say the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman whom they had framed for adultery. But it says, and this this is John, the writer talking, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. She really was guilty. And despite all the uh, injustice perpetrated upon her, she nonetheless, it was true. And friends, uh, not to be a bummer again, but you and I are the woman caught in adultery. How often have we been unfaithful? Maybe not in the same way as her. Remember, Jesus says uh, in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount that, that even uh, one who looks upon another with, with lust in our heart has, has committed adultery. Not only that, if we read the, the Old Testament, the sort of controlling metaphor for the sin of the nation of Israel is adultery because it says that they, even though the Lord was their husband, they turned to other nations, they turned to other gods, Right? And how often do we put other things in the place that God belongs in our lives, right? So we're, we are the woman caught in adultery. We can't see the image of God in ourselves. We can't see the image of God in others so often. But that's where Jesus comes in, my friends. So beautiful when he says, When where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Here's why that's important. He doesn't say, Well, it doesn't matter. Eh, adultery, no big deal. He doesn't say you didn't do anything wrong. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Friends, despite the fact that we fall short of God's glory, despite the fact that we fail to see the image of God in others, and we treat them as though we cannot see the image of them and that we act as though we do not have the image of God in us. And when we act that way, despite that, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. That's not letting us off the hook, that's mercy. That's not injustice, that is grace. And this, my friends, is, is what the cross is all about. Right, it's not that it's not that Jesus says, said, uh, you know, it, it, no big deal. It's that Jesus said, even though, even though you have broken the law, even though you fail to see the image in others, I do not condemn you, and He can do that because of the cross. This is what the cross is all about because he in himself took on what we deserve. There's a story that I like, uh, that I really like. I didn't write this story. I didn't come up with it. Maybe you've heard it before. And this, I think, uh, beautifully illustrates what the cross is about. And, and I think, I hope you'll come to see what this has to do with, with the image of God as, uh, as we see, as we tell this story. So it's a story about, about two men. There were two men and they were great friends. They loved each other deeply. And one day after a long time, one of the friends uh, leaves. He goes off to another city and uh, he becomes a criminal. The other man becomes a judge. And one day, uh, many years later, as the judge is is sitting at the bench and the the next case is brought in and the defendant for the next case walks in the door and lo and behold, it's his friend. This man whom he loves hasn't seen in years and here his friend stands in front of him accused of a terrible crime. And looking through the the, the case, hearing the arguments, it's obvious, there's no way around it. He's guilty. It's not even, it's it's not in question. So what's the man to do? What's the judge to do? He loves him so much. He, I guess he could say, uh, well, this is this is a crime and he is guilty, but I just love him so much. I can't bear the thought that he would be found guilty. So I'm going to find him not guilty. Well, he, he can't do that, right? <laughs> because that would be an injustice. That would be against his character. He would be a crooked judge. That's what crooked judges do. They let their friends off and they... And they send others to the, to the clink for the same, uh, same crimes, right? So we can't do that. So he looks into the law and the law says the penalty is $50,000, a fine. So he has to say, no choice but to say guilty. And he brings the fine and he announces it to the court. And of course he knows this man is, has nothing. He, he'll never be able to pay this fine. He loves him so much that this is what he does. When the day's proceedings are over and the courtroom is empty, the judge stands up and he, he walks down from the bench and he goes and he goes, turns and he goes into his office and he closes the door and he takes off the robe of the authority of his office and he lays it aside and he walks over to his desk and he pulls out his checkbook and he flips it open and he writes a check, $50,000 of his own money to pay the penalty for the man he loves so much. Friends, this is what the cross is about, right? It's not about, um, uh, uh, you know, if you're good enough, Jesus will die for you. No, no, no. Friends, because even though we did not deserve it, we could not pay the penalty. God loved us so much that God came to us in his son, Jesus Christ, and lived among us in a perfectly virtuous, sinless life. It ultimately went to the cross and bore the penalty for us so that he could say, Neither do I condemn you. The gospel isn't if you're good enough, God will love you. The gospel is God loved you so much that God died for you in Jesus Christ. It's already done. Because God can see that image still in us, right? It may look like the fresco that's kind of messed up. It might even look like that poor, sad monkey that that sweet saint of the church tried to, but, but God can see through it, can see that image of God. And So God did something for you that you cannot do for yourself. And what's our response? Our response is this, go and from now on, sin no more, right? It's not stop sinning and then I won't condemn you. It says, I do not condemn you. Now go, sin no more. Friends, we live in this joyous recognition of what God has done for us. And this gives us the ability to have that image restored in us, to, to begin to see others the way that God sees them and begin to have that image uh, uh, of, of God fixed in us too. And uh, I think of something that Paul wrote in, in Galatians where he said, those who through faith have become children of God, they have put on Christ. they put on Christ. Like imagine wearing, you're wearing Christ. And so it's as though when God sees us, God sees us, yes, but also that beautiful image of Jesus. And as we read in the, in Colossians, Christ is the image of the invisible God, who's come to restore us. Friends, would you pray with me, Almighty God? What we could not do for ourselves, what we could not see. But we could not behold in others. You restored it. You came in your son, Jesus, and you gave your life that we may be restored, that we may see others that we may see Christ in others, that we may see your image in others. And God, we give you great thanks. Help us each day to, to turn to you once again, to cling to you, and to trust that you'll continue to help us grow into the image of your son and to see all people as bearers of your image. In the holy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.